Well, good morning. Good to see all of you. Uh, my name is uh, Scott Mullenberg. It is so, just so very good to be back here. Sorry. I should have told Mike earlier this week, he picked my favorite song that I can't help but get choked up, and uh, and he stuck it right before I'm supposed to come up here. So I should have uh, maybe responded to his email uh, and told him to move that around. But um, it is so good to be back here uh, and to see all of you. And uh, my name is Scott Mullenberg. Like I said, I'm the pastor up at um, at First Christian Reformed Church up there in Edgerton, Minnesota, which is about uh, four hours away or so. And... Um, and I'm here with my wife and our family, our five kids, and uh, we just so love being back here. Um, I, uh, I've been kind of following uh, the passages that have been preached on uh, in the month of July and uh, just making sure that mine wasn't taken. Uh, and so I watched last week as well, and I heard Pastor Chris Peterson uh, say uh, that he is uh, uh, very heavily involved with training up young men for ministry and, uh, and pouring into these young men, and I was one of them. Um, and uh, we, we attended here from about 2010, 2011 or so to 2014 before I went off to seminary at Westminster in Philadelphia. And, uh, and Chris and Pat and a number of the other ministers and elders here just poured into myself and a number of others uh, that I can even see here. Uh, it's so good to see you, brothers. And uh, he said last week, though, that, uh, that he trained up young men for ministry. And I, uh, and I am very indebted to this church and to your pastors in particular for doing that for me. Um, let's open our Bibles this morning to Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 15. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 10 this morning together of Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, verses 1 to 10. The, the, the three parables actually in Luke's uh, Gospel account in Luke 15 all go together. Uh, the, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and then it ends with probably the most famous of the three, the parable of the prodigal son. They are all actually designed uh, to do the very same thing, uh, and we will pick that up as we go along. We're going to look today at the first two of these uh, in Luke chapter 15, and we'll take them together, the parable of the prodigal, or the parable of the lost sheep, and then the parable of the lost coin. As we turn to God's word, let's, uh, let's go to him in prayer, that he would open our hearts and our eyes so that we might see and behold wondrous things from his word. Let's pray. Our gracious God and our heavenly Father, Lord, we do pray that this time would be yours. This is the voice of the risen Lord Jesus Christ speaking to his people from on high for their good and for his glory. And so, Lord, we do pray that we would open your word this morning, not like we open the other books that we have in our homes, not like we open the other books that we read, uh, not like we open up our phones to check the news or to scroll through our feeds, Lord. Lord, this is a different book altogether. It is a, it is a supernatural book. And so, Lord, we desperately need your Holy Spirit this morning to understand it rightly and to apply it and to see all of its vast implications for the heart's of your people here this morning. We do pray that we would see and behold glorious, wondrous things from your word. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Follow along, if you would, people of God. Luke chapter 15, verses 1 to 10. Hear now God's holy and inspired and inerrant word. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying... 
This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after that one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, you see someone on the side of the street and they have a clipboard and a pen. And so maybe you think about crossing to the other side of the street because clipboards and pens on sidewalks never usually mean good things. But you you stick it out and you you walk across and you walk towards this person with the clipboard and uh, they're actually doing a survey And it's a survey that is a Christian believer you can actually engage with. And the survey question this person has with their clipboard is, what makes heaven glad? What brings joy and gladness to the heavenly places, to the host of heaven, to our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? What makes heaven glad? I wonder what you would say to that question. There's, There's a vast amount of answers that you could give to that question. But one of them is in our text. You probably heard it as we read it. It is the repentance, the genuine repentance of a sinful man or woman who comes to the very end of themselves and looks for life not in themselves, but in the risen, exalted Lord Jesus Christ. That is what brings joy to heaven. That is what makes heaven glad. That is what our text says. So we're going to open this up in a couple of parts this morning to see what it is about repentant sinners coming to the Lord Jesus, being saved by the Lord Jesus Christ that brings such joy and gladness to heaven. So here are your three words, three points as we go through. There's a complaint. There's a rescue. And then there's joy. There's a complaint. There's a rescue. And then there's joy. Look at verse 1. Notice who Jesus is choosing to dine with in verse 1 and 2. It says, Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So this this is a picture of a meal. Jesus is is not just walking along the street with these individuals. He is he is sitting down to share table fellowship with the likes of these people, as the Pharisees saw it. Tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors, 
They were viewed, rightfully so, as dishonest traitors to their own country. These would have been Jewish men primarily, and they would collect taxes from their fellow countrymen and send them to the Roman Empire. And they would often collect above and beyond. That's where we get the story of Zacchaeus as well. They would often collect above and beyond what was actually owed. And so one scholar says that a, an honest tax collector is also very likely a starving tax collector. These are not cream of the crop kind of people that Jesus is eating with here. And then it also says he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. Well, you could say, well, everybody's a sinner and you'd be right. This is someone who's so clearly wicked, so clearly odious and repulsive in society that it's like this big scarlet letter that they walk around with. This is who Jesus is eating with. Jesus is hanging around those who have pretty dreadful resumes. In fact, in John chapter 9, when Jesus heals the man born blind, Jesus himself is called a sinner like this. We know that this man is a sinner. That's the kind of people that Jesus is eating with here. He's fellowshipping with them. But notice why they're with him. Verse 1. The tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Okay, that's important. They are not gathering around Jesus simply because he is a nice guy telling them nice things about their nice lives. He's not drawing a crowd of such odious individuals because he is overlooking what they do. He he is not affirming them in their sin. He is not ignoring their sin. He is not saying, if you come to me, I will not make a big deal of how you're living. They are coming near to hear him. They want to know what he has to say to them. He is the Lord. He is the Savior. He has been teaching with authority. He's been talking about forgiveness of sins. He's been talking about repentance. People are amazed at his words. Here's the Lord Jesus Christ. As he's introduced in Luke's gospel, as the angels come to the shepherds, and he said, they say to the shepherds, this day a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord, which in my mind is in the running for the most controversial verse in the Bible. And it's a Christmas verse. He comes as Lord and Savior. He comes as Lord because we're not in charge. He comes as Savior because we are not okay. This is who they want to hear. This is who they want to listen to. This man who will tell them that how they are living is not good. They want to hear him. They want to be by him. It's amazing. But who else notices this table fellowship? Well, someone else notices. Verse 2. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Pharisees and scribes, experts in the law, teachers of the law. They were the the religious authorities. They often get a a bad rap, which is well-deserved oftentimes. But these were religious leaders who just had a very, very high concern for God's law. They, They had a very high concern for moral purity. And yet their trouble was that they added to that law things that God never said, but they never had a matching concern 
for grace and for mercy and for salvation and redemption. It was just all law. Here's the bar. There's no room for grace. And so they take issue, verse 2, with who Jesus is eating with. They said, look at verse 2. This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now they mean that, they mean that as a dig, don't they? They mean that as an insult to Jesus. They are not complimenting Jesus for what he's doing here, are they? They are saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. How terrible of this man. It's as almost though they're, they're saying, some, Jesus, someone like you should not be around people like them. Do you not know what they do? Do you not know what kind of lifestyle they live? What are you doing next to them? They, they mean it as an insult. This man receives sinners and eats with them. But you could say that about every meal that Jesus has ever had. You could say that about every meal that he has had with the Pharisees, which he has done before. Those are dinners with sinners. Also, every meal that he's ever shared with his disciples are dinners with sinners. That is who Jesus eats with. And so it is actually an unintended statement of saving faith when they say this man receives sinners and eats with them. And you say, bingo, precisely. That is exactly who Jesus came to save. But notice their response. They grumbled at this. This is their typical response. They've done this before. They did this back in Luke chapter 5, verses 29 and 30. The same word is used, that they grumbled. Same context. It's, it's mentioned again. They take issue with Jesus eating with certain people in Luke chapter 7, verses 37 to 39. And, and that word, that grumble kind of word is what frames all of Luke 15. Okay? So all of the parables that are going to start now coming, and we're going to look at the first two of them, are all trying to, are countering that response of the Pharisees. That, that rather than grumbling and muttering and complaining that Jesus is eating with the likes of these, We're given heaven's window, heaven's view of this, so to speak, and it's filled with joy and gladness that Jesus is calling these people to repentance. Jesus is going to tell three parables that counter this, that show us that we should be rejoicing, not grumbling about this. So that's the first part, complaint. Second, the rescue, verses 3 to 10. We're going to take both these parables uh, together, the, the lost sheep and the lost coin. The, the emphasis uh, will lean a little bit more heavily towards the lost sheep, though. Notice this rescue, verses 3 to 10. Notice the, the actions and the pursuit and the initiative of both the shepherd and the woman. Notice first that, that both of them are described as owning that which is lost, verses 4 and 6, verses 8 and 9. Notice this about the shepherd. What man of you having a hundred sheep? Verse six, when he comes to his home, he calls together his friends and neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost. And the exact same language is used again in verses eight and nine. This woman has 10 silver coins. And when her friends come together, verse nine, I have found the coin that I had lost. I found my coin. So 
So the first thing for us to notice about this rescue that is to cause celebration amongst the Lord's people is that the shepherd owns these sheep. Jesus did not come into the world to just save random, disconnected strangers. He came to save his people from their sins. They, the, the shepherd and the woman are both seeking for what is, for what is rightfully theirs, for what belongs to them, that they love and they treasure and they value. And that thing, particularly in the case of the lost sheep, is in danger. Darkness, distress, disorientation, attacks, theft. The sheep is in danger. And because the shepherd loves his sheep, he goes because he owns them. He, they belong to him. They are his. And that's exactly who Jesus is for his people. You shall call him Jesus because he shall save his people from their sins. He is the king who comes for his citizens. He is the shepherd who comes for his sheep. He is the faithful husband who comes for his bride. That is who Jesus is. He is a people that the Father has given him from before the foundations of this world. And Jesus comes into this world to save those people. He owns them. They belong to him. He loves them, which means that he will endure nearly anything to save them. And that's what we see next. Notice how this shepherd and how this woman endure to save that which they love. Verses 4 and eight. Does not the shepherd leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Comes out even more in verse eight, describing the woman. If she loses one coin, does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and seek diligently until she finds it? Notice that same phrase is used in both verse eight and verse four. Until he finds it. The shepherd, this woman, Jesus, perseveres in coming to save and to rescue and to find his people. He does not give up. He goes through great lengths, doesn't he? He makes great sacrifices to save his people from their sin. No matter the risk, no matter the cost, no matter the sacrifice, no matter the time involved, Jesus will save each and every single one of his people. And he will bring each and every single one of them to glory in his father's kingdom in heaven. Think of the lengths that Jesus went to to save his people from their sins. He, he's, he's the eternal son of God who, who should have rightfully received heaven's highest praises and he parted with that for a time and he stepped off of his eternal throne that he, only he deserved and he came to, to remove you and I from the thrones that we sit on that we don't deserve. He stepped off his throne to take us off ours. Think of the great lengths that Jesus, this great shepherd, went to his lowly birth. He goes from being surrounded by the heavenly host of heaven, surrounded by uh, angels and, and myriads of the heavenly host worshiping him. And he is now in a stable outside of Bethlehem, surrounded by goats and cows and donkeys. Think of his life of obedience. 
Think of the scorn and the schemes and the shameful cross he bore. Think of his beatings. Think of the insults. Think of the the cup of wrath from his heavenly father that he drained to the very bottom. These are the lengths that he went to to save his people, to save his lost sheep from the inevitable danger that they were in. The darkness, the sin, the guilt. He endured, Hebrews tells us, such great hostility against himself. So this shepherd owns the sheep. He endures anything. Notice also how he restores. Verses 5 and 6. Look at what he says about this shepherd. Verse 5. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And then the celebration at home begins. When he comes home, verse 6, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Notice that there's no hint at all in how the shepherds described. We don't know what he gave up in his evening to come find this sheep. We don't, we're not actually told what kind of threats and risks and dangers he, he endured to find this sheep. And notice there's not a hint, not a whiff, brothers and sisters, that when he comes to this sheep, he gives the sheep a hard time. This sheep wandered off on its own. Sheep are silly. Sheep are foolish. That's why you and I are compared to sheep in the Bible. There's not a hint, brothers and sisters, of, of this shepherd, nor of Jesus, coming to find his lost sheep and giving it a swift kick. As if to say, where have you been? Do, do you know the amount of time that you've taken away from my evening to come and find you, Lot? No, look at what it says. Verse 5. He lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Now the rejoicing will happen at the house too when he gets back. And same thing with the woman. The woman will invite her friends and neighbors and rejoice in the house. Notice the shepherd rejoices. He joyfully puts this little sheep on his shoulders to bring it home. He saves happily. We talk about how Jesus is this mighty Savior. He's this powerful Savior, and that is absolutely right. He also loves to save. He is glad to do it. He does not come to his people wallowing in their sin and say, do you, do you not even think about what it costs me to come find you? No, he, he picks us up out of our misery, out of our sin, puts us on his shoulders joyfully and then brings us home. That's not the main point of this text, but maybe that's exactly what some of you need to hear this morning. This world is a hard place to live in. It feels like it's getting harder and harder by the day of the things that you as parents have to navigate for your kids, the things that you have to navigate in the workplace. Some of you are caring for aging parents and you're raising your own parents. We have hard lives and we are surrounded by a world that looks like it's losing its collective mind on so many things. 
And so you might wonder to yourself, it, it sure feels like I am on my own. It sure feels like I am isolated and exposed as a little helpless lamb in a world that wants to slaughter it. Your shepherd came all the way to find you. He joyfully puts you on his shoulders. He will not drop you as he brings you to his home in heaven. This shepherd will not let go of his sheep. He has you there joyfully. And so that should give us great assurance, shouldn't it? You are, you are kept. You are preserved. You are guarded. You are being safely brought to the Lord's heavenly kingdom. Safely brought. Doesn't feel like that sometimes, does it? Doesn't feel like it's safe. We live by faith, not by sight. We are being safely brought by the shepherd on his shoulders joyfully to the heavenly places. Jesus himself, when he compared himself to this good shepherd, says of his people, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. And then the celebration at the home begins. Verses 6 and verse 9. Shepherd calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Verse 9 is identical, other than that it's the coin now. Rejoice with me, verse 9, for I have found the coin that I had lost. It's almost as though there's, it's almost as though there's just too much joy for one person to contain to themselves. And that joy needs to be shared and shed abroad. More people need to come. And this is the theme of each of these parables, isn't it? And it's, and it's countering, isn't it, what we saw in verse 1 and 2. The Pharisees muttering, grumbling, complaining. Jesus, why are you with that kind of person? And every single one of these parables ends with celebration and joy as someone who was lost comes and is found. And that's where Luke 15 ends, verse 32. The parable of the prodigal son. The father says to the elder brother, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. You see how in every single one of these parables, Jesus wants us to see that Heaven is filled with gladness when sinners come in repentance to the risen Lord Jesus Christ. It's not that they could celebrate or could not. No, the Father says it was fitting. It was proper. It was good of us to celebrate this Son returning. And notice who takes credit for all of these things. The Savior, the Rescuer, takes the credit that they deserve Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. It's not as though the sheep and the coin just wandered in and turned up back at the house. No, they have been found. And so this shepherd and this woman are to be honored. They are to be celebrated at this party because they have been the ones who have endured great lengths and great dangers to go and to restore that which they loved and that which belonged to them. They have brought back from the brink this shepherd and this coin. And so celebration, not muttering, not grumbling, not complaining, celebration 
is in order, people of God, when a sinful man or woman is brought to faith and repentance in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And that should sound familiar because that's actually where your Bible ends. Not in Luke 15. That is where history ends. Seen in Revelation chapter 5. This should sound familiar. Then I looked... And heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders and a loud voice they sang, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. The shepherd, and in this case, the lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ is to be celebrated to be rejoiced in because of what he has done to save his people from their sins. In his life of obedience, in his sacrificial death, in his victorious resurrection, Jesus is to be celebrated for bringing sinful men and women like you and like me to himself. So there's a complaint, there's a rescue, but here's his main point, joy, heaven's joy. Verses 7 and 10. Don't forget, these are parables. And so Jesus is stepping back now in verses 7 and verse 10 to say how these parables connect with this meal with tax collectors and sinners. Verse 7, just so. So he wants us to think, just as I told you this parable, that was not just filler. That was not just, well, we need to fill some time before I travel somewhere. No, he is saying, I told you the parables so that you might connect them with the situation that is happening right in front of you. With these tax collectors and these sinners. Verse 7, just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. He says the same thing, almost verbatim, in verse 10. Notice, the tax collectors and the sinners that he is eating with are hearing these parables. They themselves might think, this is Jesus the Christ? Should he be around people like us? And they themselves are hearing these parables in verses 7 and 10. And they are hearing Jesus say that there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. The tax collectors and the sinners are the lost sheep. Coin and the prodigal son. But there is a difference. Because compared to sinners, sheep and coins are relatively easy to find and to bring back. Why? Well, a coin's easy. It's an impersonal thing. Like, you just have to find it. It's not trying to avoid you. It wants to be found. But the sheep is not a moral being. Okay? The sheep just wandered off. It it also doesn't enjoy, probably, being out in the darkness, being exposed to danger and attack. It also wants the shepherd really to find it quickly. But sinful men and women do not have hearts that want to be found. 
we want distance from this shepherd. That is how our hearts are by birth, by nature. Ever since Adam transgressed and fell and was given exile, sent out, sent away from the presence of the Lord, sinners find the presence and nearness of God a threat. Not something that we can enjoy. Because He is holy. He is righteous. He is just. And we know we are not those things. And so, rather than wanting to be found like the sheep and the coin, we don't. By nature, we do not have hearts that that want to be found by this shepherd. In fact, we are at enmity with this shepherd. We are estranged from him. We are, we are loving and worshiping other things beside this shepherd that we should. We are worshiping and serving other things beside the living God. And so to save tax collectors and sinners is more difficult than to save sheep and to save coins because sheep and coins don't need to repent. And that's the point of verse 7. I tell you, there will be more in joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. He didn't use that language with the sheep and the coin. It wouldn't have made sense, would it? Sheep don't need to repent. Coins don't need to repent. But you and I need to repent. So to save the likes of you and I is actually far more difficult than to save sheep and coins. And that's what Jesus came to do though. Verse 7. He came to bring repentance to sinners. Jesus did not come to avoid sinful men and women. He did not come to swerve and to cross over to the other side of the street when he saw sinful men and women. He did not come to ignore their sin either. Remember, they are here to hear him. They want to hear what he has to say. He came to seek and to save the lost. That's what he tells them. Luke chapter 5, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Now, what is repentance? Repentance involves seeing your sin truly for what it is. Not just the fallout at work that happens when you lie. Not just the ramifications in your family when you do something you should never have done. Those are dreadful to begin with. But repentance is not just being lamenting the, 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 the consequences. Repentance is saying, I in my heart, I and not others, I can't blame anybody else. Repentance is saying, I before the Lord am at enmity with my creator and the one who has designed me to worship him forever. I am at enmity with him. I am at odds with him. I can't stand him. Repentance is getting to that place. It might show itself externally, but it's it's in the heart. The Old Testament prophet of Joel says, Rend your hearts and not your garments. And so repentance is, is a necessary thing. But it's also a gracious gift from the Lord. We often fall into this way of thinking and speaking as Christians of, well, the good news happens after you repent. 
that, 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 if, that if, you were to, if you were to, you're knowledgeable people here, I'm just going to rattle some things off. If you were to talk about regeneration and the new birth and faith and repentance and justification and sanctification and glorification, you look at that whole list and you say, those are great things other than repentance. You'd say, well, repentance is the bad thing you have to do. It's the nasty thing you have to do to get to all the other good things. The Bible speaks of it as a good thing. The Bible doesn't just speak of repentance as leading to good things. It speaks of repentance itself as a good thing. Listen to Peter. Acts chapter 3, verse 26. Talking to the crowds, Jesus has been raised from the dead. Jesus has been ascended to heaven. He says, the Father sent him, that is, sent Jesus, the risen Jesus, first to you to bless you, Now, what do you think comes next? To bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. See how that doesn't quite fit with how we typically think of repentance and turning? We think of it as this gloomy, dreadful, nasty thing we have to do on the way to the good things. The Bible says, no, the repentance itself is the part of the good thing. He comes to bless you by turning people away from the very worst thing that they could get entangled with, their sin. And by turning them to the very best thing they could ever ask for, God himself. It's nothing short, repentance is, of being brought from death to life. That's why the father, at the end of Luke 15, says he was dead and now he's alive. That's a picture of repentance. So he came to bring repentance to sinners But last, he came to bring rejoicing in heaven. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, I think that that 99 persons who need no repentance is spoken for effect. That's that's a rhetorical device. It fits the 99 sheep that stayed behind. You and I know our Bibles well enough, don't we? Paul is coming into our minds right now, isn't he? Pastor Pat is coming into your minds, isn't he, right now? There ain't nobody righteous. He'd probably be wringing his hands like this and leaning over this pulpit. He'd say, there ain't nobody righteous. And he's right. That's what Paul says. That's what the Bible says. There is no one righteous. And so these 99 is not an actual category where you could say, I think I fit into that category. No, there ain't no category like that. It's spoken for a rhetorical device. It's, a, it's an effect of this speech to compare. The joy of heaven is out of proportion with the one. There's more joy in heaven when one sinner repents. What's Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying here that heaven brims, brims with joy, with gladness, with rejoicing when sinful men and women, sinful boys and girls, by the grace of God, come to faith and repentance in the crucified and risen Lord Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying here. He is saying, in a sense, do not interrupt heaven's worship. 
Do not derail heaven's joy by saying that I did not come to save sinners from their sin. Heaven overflows with delight when even one person, when one person, it says, is rescued from that which is most harmful and destructive to them and brought to that which is most for their glory and their good. There is much rejoicing in heaven. So I leave you with this question then. Because this, Luke 15 is all about, are you rejoicing over sinners coming to repentance? Or are you, verse 1 and 2, are you muttering, grumbling, complaining? Let's, let's just put a fine edge on it. Is there anybody right now in this room that you look at and you say, are they allowed to be here? Is, is Jesus really come for them? Isn't Jesus just an, a nice Savior who comes for nice people and brings nice people to a nice place with a nice Savior? Jesus is a nice Savior. But He comes to bring unkind enemies of His to his heavenly throne room. That's actually where I, I, I skipped over it just for the sake of time, but I, I think that's where the sheep ends up. The coin ends up with the woman in her house. The son ends up with his father in his house. We're not told where the sheep goes. But I like to think that the shepherd says, I'm carrying you all the way to my house and you are part of this celebration with me. That'd be good biblical theology, wouldn't it? That the shepherd comes to save his lost sheep and brings them all the way to where he is in his home. And so I ask you then, are you glad when heaven is glad? Are you joyful when heaven is joyful? When you see that coworker of yours that you have been praying for for years... And the Lord finally opens their eyes. And does it lead to some complexities at work? Yes, it does. But are you glad and joyful that there is much joy and gladness in heaven? When your son or daughter who has walked away from your home, who has walked away from the faith that they professed when they were kids, and you are praying for them silently, decade after decade after decade, and the Lord is at work on their hearts and they come to see their need and they come and they are the, the sheep that has been rescued by this good shepherd. Are you glad? Are you full of joy and delight? Are you glad, brothers and sisters, when heaven is glad? Because Jesus, your good shepherd, is the one who loves and cares and, and seeks and rescues. And he does not rescue begrudgingly. He rescues joyfully. He puts these sheep on his shoulders. The one who could do nothing wrong came to save those who could do nothing right. And that's you and that's me. To bring us to repentance and to bring joy to heaven. What makes heaven glad? Sinful men and women 
who by the grace of God are saved and rescued by this good shepherd as he puts them on his shoulders, not as a burden, not as a hassle or a hindrance, but joyfully. And he brings you all the way to his home. Where this shepherd is, these sheep will be. Where Christ is, his people will be for heaven's joy. Let's pray. Our gracious God and our heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we love the the tight logic and reasoning of the Apostle Paul. But Lord, it is so good to see the visuals sometime as well. To have this visual of the shepherd joyfully stooping down to pick up this lost, weary, frightened sheep and placing him on his shoulders and joyfully returning to his home as the celebration begins. And Lord, that is that is exactly why you have come. That is exactly why Jesus Christ came to save sinful men and women from themselves, from their sin. Our hearts in the world tell us that sin is a good thing. And Lord, it is the thing that brings about the most misery. And so, Lord, we need rescue. And we are so thankful that the shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, is also truly the lamb who was slain to bring about the redemption of the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of his lost sheep. Lord, we do pray that you would press these truths home to our hearts, that if we belong to Christ by faith and repentance, we are those being joyfully carried to our heavenly home. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.